0: I'm Hello listeners, I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 1 of season 4 of the Criterion Reflections podcast or episode 91 in the full sequence of things and I am really happy to be back at it. I've had a really nice break. I think I just checked a while ago and saw that the last uh, season ending episode for season 3 when we finished our coverage of 1971 was released right at the end of November. I think it was like uh, American Thanksgiving weekend. So I've had a pretty nice break of it. I did my uh, end of the year Criterion Cast thing. And then Trevor and I have already uh, recorded a, a new episode of our Inside the Box podcast, which should be published any day now uh, and is already available to Patreon uh, supporters of Criterion Cast. Uh, but this is kind of a, a nice new chapter for me as I get ready to launch into. Uh, my uh, reflections on the Criterion Collections films of 1972. Um, and this is kind of a nice easing into uh, the daunting prospect of a new season. If uh, past precedent is any indicator, uh, it may take me a while to get through these. We started season three in uh, f- f- so February of 19, or 2019, so um, and, and on a very similar note in which we talked about Zatoichi and the One-Armed Swordsman. And so uh, as my continuity guy, I'm welcoming Dave Eaves as one of my two guests. Dave, hello and welcome back. Hello, David. Thank you for having <laughs> me
1: back uh, to discuss more uh, Zatoichi, this time with uh, everyone has two arms as opposed to one person <laughs> having one arm.
0: That's that's right. Yeah, and and definitely uh, not like I'm trying to peg you into a niche here or anything like that. That's okay. But, uh, you uh,
1: can go ahead and shoehorn me. <laughs> however you want. I I can be your Zatoichi expert from now on.
0: You know, you've got a standing invitation for any and all, although there's only two more (laughs) after this.
1: This is the time to get involved when the series is almost over.
0: Uh, yeah absolutely so well it is good to connect with you here again i mean it yes. feels like we've we kind of hang out almost daily in our facebook chat groups and our various you know criterion fan groups and all well, of that it, but,
1: it'll, it'll be nice to discuss something other than politics let's absolutely let's just
0: say that. <laughs> yeah yeah and we are we are at the beginning of a new year and a new uh, political administration in washington dc has hopefully brought the uh, insanity down a few degrees and and so uh, yeah I think we're all kind of good to go as far as uh, the you know the international and national scene is concerned so yeah it does feel like it's kind of a, a bit of a new era here. And uh, as far as a late January winter's day in Michigan is concerned, it's a glorious blue sky out there. Uh, So life is pretty good all around. So uh, I'm I'm happy to be getting into this new season, and I'll have a little bit more to say about that. But let's first introduce our second guest, a very familiar voice to anybody who's been a regular listener here. Richard Doyle, good to have you back on board. Welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be back. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is this is your first chance to talk Zadawichi with me. Although we've covered a lot of territory including a lot of genre stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, how's things going for you these days? Uh, it has been a little while since we've chatted, so it's nice to catch up again.
2: Uh yeah, things are going good. Um I um not that much going on. It's it's snowing here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> up in manitoba there yeah, yeah. as it should be at this time of year i would imagine but uh yeah we'll, a
1: little bit of that snow down to the the philadelphia area we're 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 fresh out
0: yeah it it really feels like non-wintry i mean we've had a, a few i've had to get my snowblower out twice so far uh, this year and uh february is typically where we kind of get our butt kicked with some big blizzardy stuff around here, but for this far into the winter and not to have a real big dump is a little unusual to say the least, but enough about weather. <laughs> let's, let's That's talk not about why people tune into this podcast. <laughs> this isn't secretly
1: a weather chat about polar vortexes and, uh, you know, seasonal weather patterns across the North American region.
0: No, not at all. It's, this is a, this is a podcast where we talk about movies and oh, geez, I, I did, I did the wrong research. <laughs> you <laughs> Okay. Well, we'll we'll uh, you know Richard and I can fill in while you scramble. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll just put the movie up. on real quick. I'll be right back. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we uh, you know typically anybody who listens to this podcast we we have our niceties. We do our little uh, you know kind of greetings and how you doing and all of that. And then we get pretty much right into the movie. There's not a lot of fluff and diversions. No skits. No ads. No uh, you know side here. But I do want to talk a little bit about the new season uh, because 1972 is kind of of an interesting year. Uh, In the United States, it was an election year. Of course, Nixon uh, was destined to go onto a landslide of of historic proportions, only to get himself in all kinds of trouble as a result of things that happened in that campaign, the impeachment, and finally his resignation in 1974. So getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But 72, you know, is an interesting year. There's some pretty amazing stuff that's coming up, and maybe it's just my own Uh, proclivity. I just really love the early 70s in cinema and the 70s as a cinematic decade. Um, But I do want to just kind of welcome people who might be tuning in. Uh, My own sort of online life has been kind of uh, rejuvenated a little bit as I've gotten into TikTok. Uh, That's been kind of a nice discovery. I kind of browsed it for a couple weeks at the end of 2020. Um, My daughter-in-law actually kind of got me Tuned in on this uh, this new vibe. I I just thought of it as a kids app, you know, sort of like a Snapchat dancing and stuff like that. But uh, there's a lot of really interesting content there, and I started kind of a my own little project on New Year's Day. That I'll just post something each day and just kind of explore this new social media phenomenon. Maybe it's not that new anymore, but it's new to me. And uh, it's turned into my little uh, sort of alternate (laughs) criterion-centric outlet as I show off my collection and answer uh, requests from people who want me to show them my copy of such and such. I just did a Seven Samurai spread yesterday and did a little thing this morning to talk about my podcast, and I've gotten a lot of engagement. It's really been a lot of fun, kind of connecting. And again, these are a lot of younger people, you know, people who are debating whether Tom Hanks or Adam Sandler is the greatest actor of all time. You know, so it's like, well, let's let's kind of broaden their horizons a little bit, right? But uh, yeah, and I'm not saying that in, in mockery or anything. It's just you know, when you're a young person. You, you sort of see the world as it's served up to you. And as you get older, you'll learn a little bit more about what's going on out there. And so, for anybody who is kind of new to my podcast and, and kind of just following me from there or wherever, you know, whatever route you took to get into it, I do want to take a minute just to talk about my basic scheme. Uh, back in 2009, I started a kind of a project of, of, blogging about all of the Criterion Collection films in the chronological order of their original theatrical release. I started with Nanook of the North and just kind of blazed my way that first year of just blogging before I got into podcasting and everything else was kind of a a, a rush of of so many films from the 20s, 30s, and even into the 40s I think I got in that first year. And while my blogging pace slowed down once i got into podcasting Uh, i've done a lot of other things um, including a full run of the eclipse series uh, in a program called The Eclipse Viewer with my friend Trevor Barrett been a pretty frequent contributor to the Criterion Cast main episodes so there's a lot of stuff that I've I've covered over the years so i really literally hundreds if maybe not even more, more than a thousand reviews and podcasts and I know you guys have done a lot of your own coverage and so I feel like it's it's just kind of a a, a nice way for me to introduce perhaps some new listeners to folks who've been this for a little bit, whether they're watching movies, writing about them, talking about them, and recording those uh, conversations, putting them online. Uh, That's what I'm doing here, and so we are going to continue the sequence of 1972 films. And finally, before I Kind of get into our main conversation here. I, I do want to say that if you are interested in being a guest, um, I am pretty egalitarian. You do not have to be a bona fide experienced podcaster. You don't have to be a an A, B, or even C list celebrity <laughs> to join me up. Uh, I, I'm just a regular dude who likes movies, and uh, so were you guys, right? And uh, it turns out that it's not that hard to do. It's actually a lot of fun. And so, if you would like to uh, contact me, um, through any of my social media platforms. The links are in the show notes at criterioncast.com. Hit me up with a message and uh, we'll look at what's coming up over the next, uh, you know, weeks and months ahead and see if we can give you a chance to, you know, flex your muscles a little bit at podcasting. And if you've done podcasting before and want to come on over my way, certainly make room for you as well. This is uh, a place where novices and experts uh, alike can gather and just share their love of film. So, that's kind of my little intro, my little uh, opening bid here to kind of, you know, kick off a new season and look ahead. Um, just some of the titles that we've got coming up. Jean Trolls, The New Land, kind of the part two of this epic saga of immigration from Sweden. Uh, we've got Godzilla versus Gaigan, kind of from that massive Godzilla set. Uh, Federico Fellini's Roma. John Waters' Pink Flamingos, we yeah, because we get into the old laser discs. You know, you're not going to find that on DVD or Blu-ray in the Criterion edition, but there was a laser disc once upon a time. Uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris, uh, Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury, uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Tous va Bien the Lone Wolf and Cub series. We're going to kind of get several of those episodes under our belt and uh, a lot of other really wonderful films from 1972. So uh, that's just a preview of what I've got in store. Uh, We're going to start today with Zadowichi at Large, released on January 15th of 1972. And and Dave and Richard, it's great to have you on. And uh, let's just go ahead and get into it. First of all, do you want to react to anything I just said about Season 2, or do we just want to get into Zadowichi?
1: I, I just wanted to say to anyone listening, if they have any doubts that they can be a podcaster, if I can be on a podcast, you can be on a podcast.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and it really, it's it's just been such a great way of of not just building friendship, but just understanding the different folks, uh, you, you know, the personalities, the the issues we touch on. I mean, these films, you know, they're very entertaining and very fascinating, just as kind of cultural objects to contemplate. But they also touch on deep issues of life and, and culture and society and the nature of reality, all of that stuff. And, and we'll go there. So, uh, you know, this is not just a, you know, we just don't go all googly eye because something is kind of awesome. We, we try to, you know, dig into the subject matter a little bit and, uh, you know, make it worth the listen. Uh, Richard, anything you want to add to that? Or let's just get into this. What do you think? Let's go. Okay, let's go. Okay, Richard. So tell me now, this is your first chance to talk zatoichi with me. And, uh, you know, you've been a pretty frequent contributor, and I've always appreciated your willingness just to jump in and give it a go. So, uh, what is it that drew you to talk about Zadoichi at Large, which is the 23rd installment of this 25 film franchise?
2: Um, well, I've, I've always been a fan of this series. I, um, Back in the back before the Criterion set was released, I would catch with those that I could find on that were released on DVD by Animego, the Japanese specialty DVD label. And um, I bought this set like instantaneously because it was one of the first sets Criterion released that I didn't think I would ever see, which was this entire series all in one set.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So this was the first one that popped up since I've been on your joining your podcast right um sad to say i'm not a big fan of this one <laughs> <It> turns out <laughs> well yeah
0: well and and that's fine i mean that's th- this is kind of like you know just kind of sliding into your seat with a big old bucket of popcorn you know i mean i don't know if you actively dislike this movie or or not i i, I was okay with it and we'll, we'll, we'll get into our analysis but you're right this is probably one of the most you know, formulaic of, of all the Zatoichi films we've talked about. And uh, we'll, we'll analyze a little bit, but, but generally you, you do like the series. You, you kind of, you, you've seen the whole set of them I'm, I'm imagining, right?
2: I, I haven't seen all of them. I've seen probably about 70% of them. Okay. Uh, I've, been, I've been, I've been sampling the Criterion set in random order pretty much. Um, and I do like the series a lot. One of the things I really do like about the series is it's, intense reliability that you normally know exactly what's going to be in one of these movies and it pretty much is exactly what you'd expect with some interesting bells and whistles like different different chapters of it have different surprises in store
0: yeah definitely
2: it's very much like television in that respect
0: Well, and that's very much where this series was going, and maybe we'll we'll get into that a little bit more as we get into the final two films. But you know, this was you know, this was a franchise. I think it began in 1962, or maybe even 61. Uh, but it, you know, this is this is a series that was a decade in the making. And if you look at well, this is the 23rd film, so they were there were some years where they cranked out like three in a row, you know, three within 12 months, and then uh kind of a trivia note in 1969 they didn't release any zatoichi films so in the first season of my podcast which was dedicated to that year uh, we didn't talk any zatoichi but there were two in 1970 and then one in 1971 which is again where dave and i were joined by michael worth a very experienced and, and a really a wonderful uh speaker and guest he's been in martial arts films he's an actor he's also been a director so he's got some really inside knowledge about um you know martial arts cinema he's been to hong kong and he's been to taiwan and he's you know he's he's kind of lived the dream for people who kind of you know are into that scene he he's got a lot of interesting stuff to say and the the one we talked about before is and the one-armed swordsman was really kind of a unique entry because it incorporated a pretty uh, successful martial arts figure from Chinese cinema. And it was kind of like a a hero crossover kind of franchise thing. Uh, Dave, let me, we can just pick it up from there. You know, you you talked about Zatoichi with me and Michael uh, almost two years ago when (laughs) season three started. And, you know, if it had some breaks in there and and we covered a lot of movies. But uh, yeah, so so picking up from where we left off, uh, where are you at with Zatoichi at large? It's also not
1: my favorite. Um, A ways back, I've watched everything from this set. My experience with these films is slightly different from Richard's in the sense that I had never seen any of them prior to Criterion releasing this, but I was aware of them. So this coming out was a great way for me to be like, hey, this is my chance to finally see all these. And I think it took me a full year to get through every single film. So I have seen everything in here. And this is definitely on the lower end of my of my rankings of the films mm-hmm. but it like you said it's probably one of the most formulaic if you're just going to pick up one you're probably going to watch it and you're going to enjoy it but uh, one thing that i've definitely noticed about this series is that they fit into typically one of four different types of plots uh, one type of plot is that Zatoichi Uh, faces off against a foe of equal talent that is equally interesting and has a character backstory, and you learn a little bit about them, and they either fight to the death or learn to settle their differences and go about their separate ways. Uh, Another one is that Zatoichi finds a child somewhere. Another one is that Zatoichi must save a town festival from the Yakuza. And the last is that Zatoichi meets a person, place, or thing from his past and must uh, somehow come to terms with that. And this somehow combines the first three plots into one movie, which makes it less interesting somehow, and a little bit more formulaic. But watching it kind of in a vacuum, because it's been several years since I've rewatched any of these films, watching it on its own, it's definitely just like, oh yeah, this is a Zatoichi movie. Yep, it's hitting every single Zatoichi beat. But I think it's also slightly more enjoyable to watch it kind of separated from everything else, because as you're watching these, it is somewhat like a TV show, like you said. It, it You sometimes get a little bit numb because it's like, I've seen this before, I've seen this before, I've seen this before. But kind of separating this out, it's like, okay, I had fun watching this. Sure, it's not the best movie. Sure, it's not the most original movie. But it's definitely hitting all of the Zatoichi beats that you're familiar with. And sometimes it's just nice to watch something that's familiar
0: Absolutely, and I I think that's exactly where I'm coming from as kind of an intro to a a new year, a new season of the podcast, and just kind of, you know, like I say, I've been on a little bit of a break for a couple months, so this is kind of just like cinematic comfort food of a sort. You know, as I'm, I'm looking at my book right here in this beautiful box that's by number 679, I've got the original dual format release i think it's is it only available in blu-ray now is that yeah it's a thinner
1: it's a thinner case now Which i actually think the thinner case looks a little nicer but you you can't say that this is not a gorgeous box set it this is some of the best artwork i think they've ever done in terms of how it's presented especially since it's like a full 360 degree piece of art that that forms the cover here
0: yeah, it really is. I mean, if you were so indulgent, you could actually, you know, cut up the boxes and have it on a spread. There, not, not that I recommend anybody would actually do that, but yeah, we were blown away. I mean, I'm talking about the Criterion fan base when they first announced this. Kind of like what you said, Richard. Whoever would have thought Criterion would have put all of these out in one gargantuan yeah, package like that? And you know, of course, uh, you know they've kind of outdone themselves with box sets in the in the years subsequent. But at the time. Other than like that, uh, you know, Essential Art House 50 DVD megabox, I mean, this was probably like the most impressive thing that Criterion had ever done as a single release. And, you know, since then we've had the Olympics and Fellini and Bergman and Varda. So this one, you know, I won't say gets lost in the shuffle. It's still a very coveted item and still a pretty you know, kick-ass product, you know, just as as a piece of merchandise. Um, But, you know, gathering all of these films, putting them out in kind of nice restored uh, Blu-ray editions. Um, You know, let me just ask you, Richard, you know, having watched those Animago uh, DVDs, and I remember in my old days of getting started as a Criterion collector, going through the, you know, the foreign film section and seeing all those Zatoichis mixed in there as I was, you know, Plucking out, you know, um, Criterion titles and other kind of art house films, and wondering what this is all about. Uh, you know, how big of an improvement was this set compared to the earlier editions?
2: Um, it's it's a big improvement. Not to um, not to swipe at Animego because I that was a very important label in Japanese cinema at some point, right? They've sort of mm-hmm. sloped off and mostly do anime nowadays, but. Um, They've never had super good prints of any movie. They were always serviceable. Uh, So this is like a huge improvement. They also did the Lone Wolf and Cub movies on Blu-ray first. And -hmm. their Blu-rays are not very good.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, and that doesn't that almost become sort of a convention of martial arts cinema that you sort of expected them to be kind of beat up and kind of skippy and just kind of, that was almost part of the kind of atmosphere, if not even the outright charm is just kind of how, you know, just kind of banged up and and worn worn out. So many of these prints were, and that's just how people were used to seeing him uh, I would imagine anybody who's been like a longtime Zatoichi fan, and and this was my introduction. To this set, you know, I, I had never seen any of these films before, so I just sort of take them as like, oh, that's pretty pretty sharp looking. But you kind of get used to that with Criterion. But I imagine this had to be kind of a revelation to people who had, you know, grown to love the franchise and then got to see it in this. You know, beautiful clarity. Because I mean, these are these are really nicely shot films. I mean, the the, the cinematography, the widescreen, kind of the epic scope and scale. Uh, that's obviously something that could not carry over into the TV format that uh, the, the series eventually shifted to in the early seventies. But I think these are these are aesthetically very pleasing films, even if the you know plots and stories can get kind of derivative.
2: That's really a hallmark of Japanese genre filmmaking is that they are usually really nicely shot films. So it's, it's been wonderful to get them in, in nice editions these days. The, the, they, the older releases of them have always, as you say, been kind of disappointing, but you were largely happy to get them at all. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Just to have them.
1: And I find it very interesting as well, since this series does go on for such a long time that you kind of see how that style progresses. Cause watching this, especially probably the last one I rewatched was one of the earlier ones. This very much feels like a seventies film. They're very much diving into the seventies aesthetic. There's a lot of handheld. It feels a little grittier. Whereas the early ones, I mean, the first two are in black and white. I think there's a little bit more of that sixties prestige with some of the earlier ones, Whereas this one's kind of getting a little bit more into that grindhouse style that really defines like the Lone Wolf and Cub movies and especially defines the uh, the Zatoichi film after this that I won't get into right now because that's another podcast for another day for you. But uh, no, this uh, even even the music, I I remember I was watching this, my wife was on the couch. She's like, this sounds like you're watching a porno. Like, yeah, it's just (laughs) really leaning into that kind of music style. And it's funny because it's almost like a culture class because you have that like very old world style of like uh, reciting the Japanese poetry over this like funky bass line. It's like, okay, yep, yep. that's, uh, that's Satuichi in the seventies.
0: Yeah. And, and the listeners will have heard some of those uh, excerpts from the intro and coming up in the outro music. i got some soundtrack clips I've already been able to record. Uh, so I'll I'll be uh, you know, festooning some of that on on your uh, welcoming ears, I'm sure. <laughs> but but let's get let's get into the the story itself. Yeah, like I say, this is Zatoichi at large. I don't think that's a literal translation, and really, so many of these films could you know have interchangeable titles. You know, the next one is called Zatoichi in Desperation. Well, he's pretty desperate here, <laughs> at least for a portion of the film. But Zatoichi at Large, I guess the the title here kind of comes from the fact that he's. Uh, A wanted man. Uh, He, you know, there's bounty posters around offering a twenty Rio reward if uh, if he's captured. It's not exactly clear who's going to pay that reward or or you know who who are the authorities that are trying to track him down. But you know, anybody familiar with the story is recognizing it. Yeah, he's he's made a lot of enemies along the way. Um, But uh, you know, there's as I'm looking at my book here, there's there's a section I'll just kind of take a minute to read. Uh, and this is part of the very gener- general introduction to the films, uh, talking about the whole series. So uh, take one or two vicious Yakuza bosses, a benevolent peasant or innkeeper weighed down by debts, a virtuous daughter mm-hmm. threatened with concubinage, a hot-headed brother attracted to a life of crime or vowed to bloody revenge, and an orphan infant. And you have the makings of pretty much any Zatoichi vehicle. And this film in particular really just stamps that. I mean, because all of those elements are like right there. And as I was reading this the other night, it's like, yeah, this this was really, you know, out of the, straight out of the recipe book. You know, they did not throw any ex- special spices or, or twists into this one. And, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, certainly the average Japanese film viewer of 1972 did not have... Off the shelf access to the whole Zadovich series, like we do, you know. Uh, even you know, if you, if you want to compare this to like James Bond, uh, in in you know in the West, you know, a new James Bond movie would come out, and maybe they recirculated or recycled those films and and showed older ones in repertory, or even had them on TV back in the day. But that's pretty much not not how Zadovich worked. I mean, the, the theaters would play him. People would come and check in, and then you may never see that movie for for many, many years. Uh, you would just have sort of a, a, a memory or an impression of, of how Zatoichi functioned. And so the the idea of repeating those beats and, and kind of adhering pretty closely to the tried-and-true format uh, may not have come across as maybe pedestrian or forgettable or run-of-the-mill as, as, as we might be viewing it here. So I'm not necessarily trying to make excuses or apologies for this film. It's just, it's what it is. Um, it, we can start by talking about the director, Kazuo Mori. Uh, he is, he'd is he already done a couple of earlier installments. I think he might have actually done the second film and then another one sort of in the middle called Zaduichi and the Doomed Man. Um, and he is almost like, from what little I could actually find out about his career, he is like the the textbook case of the journeyman Japanese film director. I think he he directed over 150 different films or, or titles. Uh, a lot of those in TV in the 70s, and uh, you know, he was actually one of the major or main directors of the Zadoichi TV series, which went on for several years. Uh, after the you know, film franchise had kind of wound down. Uh, otherwise, you know, and he, and he did a lot of other, you know, crime and samurai stuff, but it does not have a a signature film that stands out to me. But, you know, he is in the Criterion Collection as a result of having directed three of these. So I don't really have a whole lot to say about him, but it does feel like this is... Very much kind of a production line vehicle. It was like you know time to do a new Um uh, just like in in season three, Zadochi and the one armed swordsman was uh, an early January release, so it must be that they were on kind of a kind of a new year's time type, uh, type of timeline. like I don't know if there's any particular meaning to that. Or, or what, but, uh, you know, that was the time when the, the, when the studios decided it was a good good shot to release a new Zatoichi. And this one's also a little bit interesting because this is the first of, uh, I think, the last three films that were released by Toho, whereas Zatoichi had been part of the Dai studio system uh, and I think is kind of credited as, as prolonging the life of that studio as they were kind of sputtering out and uh, finally had to close down. Uh, so we've got new distribution here. And, and also several films ago, Katsu Productions uh, took over the, the uh, kind of overall management of the franchise. And of course that's named after Shintaro Katsu, the actor who, you know, secured his fame uh, in his you know, kind of inhabiting the presence and person of Zatoichi, And I think that's another really important piece. I mean, he is a pretty marvelous uh, actor and and maybe in some ways easy to take for granted because he did this role so many times and you you know all of the tricks that he uses but if you sort of stop back and step back and just take a look at it this guy is like super talented and and pretty brilliant and i just definitely want to give a little shout out to uh mr katsu because uh he's kind of a one of a kind
1: and it's kind of amazing that he kind of made his entire fame and fortune on the fact that he was really good at playing blind people. Cause uh, it was the He He's like the son of a musician. I don't think he ever really wanted to kind of get into that instrument, but his teacher there was blind and he would uh, like get laughs from people by impersonating him by pretending to be blind. And he spun that into a career of playing this blind swordsman. He was kind of like a, not huge actor, and he became this giant presence within the Japanese film industry. And I think especially by this point in the series, you can really see that his influence uh, and his celebrity is kind of driving the series forward. Because like you said, it's Katsu Productions now. He's he's the one that's keeping this alive. And this is kind of like his signature character that throughout the years he continued playing. And that's another thing that I kind of think, going back to saying that this feels a little bit 70, more 70s, a little bit grittier. If you see any of the other films that he's making at this time, it seems like he's really kind of leaning into that grindhouse. Let's make this a little bit more adult. Let's make this a little bit more violent. Because something like of the Razor, that is not for kids. And I always have to wonder... <laughs> Yeah, like because when you watch the earlier Zatoichi films they kind of feel like they're for everyone then in the middle they feel like they're a little bit more for kids I don't really know who the audience is here because there's some pretty like adult material here, there's a lot of violence I don't know, it, it's such a I, I'd love to be on a fly on the wall in 1972 Japan to see like who this was being catered to at the time
2: Yeah, and he's also behind the Lone Wolf and Cub films so. exactly,
1: and that's his brother playing the lone wolf who also appears in a couple of Zatoichi movies
0: well, there, I think there are some thematic elements, uh, you know, pieces of the story or the situations that definitely tie into what you're saying there, Dave, as far as that kind of grittier grindhouse aesthetic, um, a little bit more um, explicit. I mean, and, and that's something I've noted in the last several is that, you know, the, the, the blood spurts and the, the, the gore, the violence, you know, that becomes much more pronounced as uh you know japanese the tv industry is sort of taking off and and doing its own thing and so you've got to find out what can we show in theaters that we can't show on tv and and that really that that almost goes like right to the very beginning of the film you know we have this uh, situation where zadoichi very you know typically is just kind of introduced as he's wandering from town to town he's out in the kind of a kind of a wild place, you know, just kind of a path between two villages, presumably. And he overhears uh, the sound of some kind of struggle. There's a woman who's being chased through these these tall grasses. And it's very picturesque, you know, as well. Uh, I think about... Um, a touch of Zen you know, and some of the you know some of the aesthetics and the beauty and 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 many other you know Asian films at this time really like to use those natural elements and so you got the sunlight through the tall grasses this pursuit and he rescues well he tries to rescue a, a pregnant woman who's been assaulted robbed and because of the trauma she's just experienced kind of goes into a uh, premature labor and and so it's it's really kind of a harrowing scene although in some ways it's it's kind of played for laughs you know there's Zaduichi yeah. crouching on the ground <laughs> trying to induce labor and the woman's legs and her knees are kind of crunched around his head and it's that's a very suggestive posture that that he winds up in. Yeah, go ahead.
2: I've seen a lot of things, and I don't think I've ever seen death in childbirth played for laughs.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right. He's, he's tre- treading into some very sensitive territory, to say the least. And, and uh, you know, the next thing you know, he's... He's got a baby, and and the very first Zadouichi film that I ever reviewed uh, for my blog was Fight Zadouichi Fight, which I think was like number eight in the series, and uh, that also was Zadouichi, uh, you know, picking up an orphaned child and having to figure out how this, you know, this, you know, savage killer blind masseur, you know, all the inconveniences that a, a small child would present to somebody in in his station in life. And yet there's just so many elements that are just really kind of bizarre. What what did you think about sort of some of the other sort of body humor? I mean, you've got, you know, during the opening theme music, Zadowichi turns around to take a whiz into a stream, you know? <laughs> <laughs> While carrying
1: a puppet baby.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he gets puts some rice milk on his nipple to try to induce <laughs> the child to feed. It's like, what? Uh, yeah, just trying to make some sense out of this, you know yeah whos whose brilliant idea in the scripting session was was seized and I was like, let's go with it.
1: <laughs> you know? I, th- th- this is where I have to think that this is Shintaro Katsu saying this is a good idea and you're gonna listen to me because I'm Zatoichi <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean obviously they're they're kind of flinging stuff against the wall and, and a few things stick that some of us wonder should it really have. it makes
1: for a very bizarre viewing experience so i say yes i'm glad they did that
0: yeah well it is i mean it it, it makes it unique and of course and there's also sort of the the running gag of zatoichi getting you know bopped on the back of the head with with pelted rocks you know this this Mm. kid who's kind of a bystander uh there is a reveal later on that he's actually another son of the of the woman who died in childbirth who is convinced that Zatoichi, you know, killed his mother. And so you understand his anger, but uh, it's a big misunderstanding. But, you know, so you've got Zatoichi getting, you know, bonked a couple times, and then, of course, he's using his... Magical reflexes and his superhuman hearing to recognize, oh, there's a rock on my way, so I'm going to deflect it. There's another time where he throws a rock and collides in midair, so it's just kind of like, you know, all of the stunts, all of the, uh, you know, uncanny impossibles. uh, Those those events occur, and it's always kind of fun just to see how what kind of new twists and and uh, wrinkles they can throw at us in terms of his uh, his prowess at uh, deflecting. Objects, uh, there, there's the gambling piece and all of that. Yeah, there's always a gambling scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 here it, it again. It has a little bit of that. I don't know, sort of semi erotic because you know here and the gambling trick. It's that you know the woman who's tossing the dice uh, somehow manages to slip a pair of uh, loaded dice into her cup so that you know, because Zatoichi, of course, is you know you know clearing out the house i mean he, he's just racking it up because his uh acute sense of hearing can understand where the dice are going to tumble and so he he can you know lay these kind of guaranteed bets down but when she uh you know does her little you know uh, sidestep to try to you know thwart his his gambling you know she she hides the the honest dice in her mouth and Zadovich picks up on that, and then, and the close up is like right there. He's like just digging right into her 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 lips and teeth, and it's like that's a pretty interesting and again a little a little squirmy type of a, a close up that they're that they're running on us there. And you guys have a reaction to that particular shot or where I, they're going? I for just it?
2: know
1: that if I'm ever finding myself in 1840s Japan, I'm not betting on any dice game. They're always crooked. That's what Zadovich's <laughs> taught me.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it is interesting because it seems like it's just all or nothing. I mean, huge bets, even or odd. That that there, there's no <laughs> it's, like, it's not a complex uh, game, but you can lose uh, everything. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah. So the scheme is developed where you know he he's got this baby now, and he's got to figure out you know who does this baby belong to. Of course, the mother's dying words give him a name and a village, so that's where he heads. Along the way, he he sees that you know he's a wanted man. There's there's money on his head, and so he sort of you know slides around these people and is just going to do his best to lay low until, of course, it becomes obvious that this village, uh, which is a kind of in this state of innocence at the at the moment, because the yakuza have all been chased away some time ago by the the constable, you know the the deputy uh, law enforcement in the town, kind of cleaned up. Neck
2: the most laid back constable ever
0: (laughs) (laughs) really it it is it's but apparently he's he's done his work and and the town has been kind of uh purified and and he doesn't really have a whole lot to do now he's just you know kind of trying to keep his uh, his son in line and so you and that's another piece of the of the puzzle i think um Rebellious youth, of course, have been had been a, a, a big part of Japanese cinema back to the Sun Tribe films of the late fifties, but I think you got you got that general generation gap that was happening in the early seventies where, you know, a lot of young people were questioning the the ways of the elders and why do we have to do it this way and tradition sucks and we we're gonna chart our own course and all of that. So you've got a little bit of a generational thing going on between the dad and the son. The son is a little bit enamored with this uh, gang of yakuza uh tatsuguru he's he, you know when when it's recognized and it, it it is it's so formulaic you know you've got these these uh this kind of festival these carnival characters coming into town saying oh there's no yakuza here uh this is a this is a nice place and of course you know you know two minutes later, here come the Yakuza marching in columns to kind of, you know, exert their influence. They set up a protection racket. They tell the the carnival players, you're going to have to pay us if you even perform. You have to give us a big percentage of whatever you take. And so the bad guys are there. And it's it's all very heavy-handed, kind of obtuse and kind of obvious. Uh, but that's, that's the basic setup. You know, so you've got the constable trying to, you know, keep the town clean, the Yakuza kind of leering and even though they're not literally twirling their mustache, it's that same kind of, you know, heavy handed villainy going on here.
1: They're they're twirling their top knot.
0: (laughs) There you go. And, and, you know, it's just, it's just badness for badness sake, you know? So, you know, I, I don't know that there's a, a a ton to be gained by analyzing the the plot (laughs) mechanics or (laughs) anything like that. Uh, But, but what are some deep,
1: there's some deep rooted uh, political commentary, in the uh, performances
0: the guy with the giant <laughs> oh, mustache. Well, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about that. I guess that's that's part of the comic relief. You, do you guys I, want to take on the the, the shines there? I, I, don't I understand them. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in these like
1: later half Zatoichi movies, I feel like there's always these really over the top comedic performances that I have to assume and I can find no evidence to back this up. This is just me speculating that they find these like TV comedians that are that are semi well known within Japan, to like, you're yeah. gonna have a little bit in this Zatoichi movie and there are so many like Yeah <laughs> little monkey acts. Like, what the heck? <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's no effort to introduce or explain them. It's just suddenly here's cra- guy with a crazy mustache and guy with a monkey and
0: yeah yeah, you know, born
2: yeah. for a little bit. I was <laughs> sitting here going, who are these people?
1: <laughs> and they're just they're so 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 over the top. Like, yeah. if, if anyone's you know. watched any, like, Japanese reality TV or Japanese game shows today, you see those people and it's like, oh, it's because they're t- TV personality. This is their shtick. And I, that's where, where I'm making this conclusion that, that I cannot prove. So if anyone's listening and knows the answer, please tell me who these weirdos are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, occasionally you, you see indications in, like the the, the liner notes in, in the booklet of of you know featuring so and so, but there's not really a lot of explanation. I, they, they do mention a few of the the, the prominent bad guys and, and the constable as as veteran actors, but you're right. Some of these guys seem like they would have been like on the Japanese equivalent of. Like Laugh-In or late mm-hmm. night Johnny Carson comedians or and you can little even cameos some that, of the hairstyles like the one
1: woman with the, the really short dyed blonde hairstyle that clearly wouldn't have happened in
0: 18th century <laughs> Japan right for 19th right.
1: century Japan
0: yeah so so again they they probably throw them in it's it's just a little bit of diversion and humor so you're right th- this is really this is populist filmmaking I guess at its at its well not finest. Because <laughs> <laughs> but but at it's it's most generic and, and most formulaic so uh um, yeah I mean it's it is something that sort of stands out I guess that that's one of the unique you know aspects of the film but it but it it flies by and it doesn't really add a whole lot to the story I guess it just gives a little bit of flavor a little bit of color and and there you go it, it puts that to each e- at, at, at
1: odds with the With the Yakuza, because he stands up for them and gets them to be able to perform without handing over all of their Rios or Mon or whatever denomination (laughs) of currency they were currently talking about that I need to constantly just like, all right, let's try to remember how much is this actually worth? It seems like a lot
0: we'll have to get a 19th century Japanese currency chart posted yeah. in the show notes or something like that. But I, you know, I, I do, you know, and you always enjoy the sword tricks. I, this one here was particularly memorable when he sort of stripped down the Yakuza thugs yeah. who are, surrounding... <laughs> I mean, that's again, that, that's probably not something you're going to see on Japanese TV in 1972. <laughs> so a sight gag where basically he does a few, sh- 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 the sword. And then the next thing, you know, their, their trousers are dropping. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so yeah, so again, you know, don't, those are the. Those, you know, I'm I'm surprised they didn't choose that scene for the illustration in the book. You know,
2: <laughs> it, it's ironic too because they were threatening him with it.
0: Oh yeah, exactly. Well, and 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 the women, I mean there is a kind of an inversion because they were they were you know basically rounding up all the uh, eligible young women to open up a brothel. So that's like the first order of business when the Yakuza come to town, I guess is to you know set up a pleasure house there, yeah. Uh,
2: I'm a little unclear on the plot mechanics though. I think uh, we're supposed to understand that this was a Yakuza boss from a nearby town.
0: Yeah, he was just yeah, expanding were, his territory, right?
2: People had borrowed money from him, or something.
0: Yeah, he well, he had deeds. Like somehow, debt uh, notes of debt had wound up in his hands. Yeah. Um, I think wouldn't wasn't. Um, Oh yeah, she said like it was just a 1 rio loan, yeah. but then with interest and corruption, it turns into 20, which is a pretty major yeah. amount apparently, yeah. apparently, you know. And and so she's stuck and of course, you know, again, the the plot mechanics are that um that 20 rio was on its way to her from her husband um or no, not from her husband, from well, her the
1: husband via
0: yeah, uh, the from the brother via the wife that gave birth right. that died. Yeah, right, and, and
2: so, it was stolen in the first minute or so of the film.
0: Yeah, right, and it was, and it turns out to be one of the yakuza. And it, there's a very quick, you know, resolution of that, but it flies by so quickly, I didn't catch it till my rewatch. So, oh, that's where the $20, 20 Ryu went, and that's the guy who the kid threw the the rag to, and Zatoichi, of course, instantly dispatches him, and justice is is served. Yeah. So, so yeah, all again, you know these these little you know, threads weave their way through and, and they result in Zadouichi kind of, again, coming to the rescue of the, you know, the orphans and the widows and the honest, uh, hardworking peasant folk whose, whose lives are being upended and exploited by these cruel mob bosses. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of, uh, where it all goes. Um, were how about the fight scenes? How about the big the big battles? I, there's also the the development, which is really one of the, I would say one of the weakest supervillains of of the entire <laughs> yeah. series. Yeah. This guy who just you know he comes in and he wants to be paid fifty Rio because he's got extraordinary swordsmanship skills and he he shows his little display he makes his little flashy entrance and so yeah okay he knows how to sling the blade that's cool but um now all of a sudden he fashions himself to be zatoichi's you know next big nemesis uh what'd you all think about how that was handled because it's um it's pretty anticlimactic to say the least
2: it, it's very much like it just echoes what happened in a lot of the other films but this guy yeah. seemed to be more into watching than anything else <laughs> so,
0: um, <laughs> yeah yeah you, and and you could delete him from the film and the movie would still be feature length yeah right and it it, it really felt almost i mean literally like a checkbox like well you got to have one you know arch nemesis here but the way he he almost forces himself into the action is like exactly is like what do, what do you have to do with me you know Um uh, the one-armed swordsman and some of the other you know villains that we've had they they show their prowess earlier on in the film, and they they feel like yeah this is this is a real genuine match here. This guy didn't show anything that made me think Zatoichi is really in danger here. And and the way Zatoichi really just kind of brushes him off at the end. I mean, it's it's, it's almost it, like an
1: after credit
0: sequence. It really is. The movie's you know? over,
1: and then the guy shows up, and just the end shows up like <laughs> the yeah, fight just yeah started and just ended.
0: Yeah, and and I you you wonder were was there at some point in the development uh was this going to be an expanded role and they just couldn't figure out what to do with it so they they had some footage they just didn't want to waste it or something I don't know well, Because it's completely a, extraneous yeah he,
1: he delivers one key plot point he's the one that frees Zatuichi when he's kidnapped correct oh,
0: that's good. Yeah, because he wants to have his showdown with yeah. the rival. He, he doesn't want him to go down. So and my that, guess is they came up with that and they said, uh-oh, <laughs> we need to do something <laughs> with this guy. Exactly. Yeah, and, and let's talk about Zadoichi's punishment. I mean, that that was another piece that struck me as like... And and, and some of these later films, you definitely see Zadoichi kind of getting raked pretty hard. You know, he he's abused, he's beat up, he's bruised, he's bloodied. Uh, this one here, it almost seems like he really just laid himself down. I mean, you know, it was when the young boy was still thinking that Zataoichi had killed his mother, uh, he he you know, and Zadoichi had already fended off a few of these rocks to the back of his head. Well at this point, he gets nailed and then he just crumbles in a heap. And it's like, what what was that all about? I mean Zatauichi's like you, you like, like it? Okay. I like it a lot. It. It's
2: like that kid is the secret weapon, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the kryptonite, right? <laughs> he
2: needs to be hearing, right? He needs to be paying attention and, and the kid distracted him at the key moment and he couldn't detect the opponents.
0: And he, he called him a murderer, right? Yeah, so he it. was.
2: That's the thing that
1: I took it as. This kid calls him a murderer and he can't uh, t- take it upon himself to kill anyone in front of this kid who already believes that he's a killer because this kid is right. innocence and Zatoichi, despite the fact that we're 23 movies in and he's killed probably more people than any other human being in the history of cinema. Um, he can't, th- he can't bear the thought of a child thinking that he's the bad guy. That's, that's one of the big driving factors here with the Zatuichi character is that yeah. he's this blind masseur that became a Yakuza to try to increase his status Uh, had a had a uh, moment of conscious uh whatever the the saying would be here where he realizes oh yakuza are bad i don't want to be the bad guy and he tries to continue going about his life as a masseuse but he has all this great training he has all these skills and because of his criminal past he's always going to end up in trouble
0: yeah and i think you do see some of that some of the films i think um was it samaritan's Zaduichi there's a, there's a few Zadoichi challenged maybe i you know the the names blend together but there were a few like several episodes ago where you felt like Zadoichi was kind of almost like on this spiritual quest like mm-hmm. he's starting to get a little bit more deep and reflective and recognizing the error of his ways and the fact that you know he's brought a lot of destruction into the world you know most of it justifiable because you know it's his life or theirs but at the same time, you know, he, he's taking stock of all the damage that he's done. Uh, you're kind of moving away from some of that here, but it's still sort of in the background. And the fact that it was this child's accusation that kind of, you know, led to his downfall. But I also, I mean, it, it felt almost like... It, the passion of the Ichi or something like that here where he's just getting, yeah. And, and, and he's kind of, you know, laying himself out there as a sacrifice. It is kind of a messianic type of function that he's playing at that part of the film, because he's taking all this abuse, all of this punishment on behalf of these poor villagers with whom he's thrown in his lot, albeit very temporarily. Of course, we know he's not going to settle down and you know, become a champion of these folks. He's just going to try to get rid of the bad guys so that they can get back to their peaceful way of life. But um, that, that just felt like another sort of function of the Zatoichi character is that he's going to take on, you know, the the sins and the sufferings of the world so that the uh, the honest, simple folk can you know, have a bit of relief from the grind of their daily existence. So, yeah, so we've, we, we, again, it it all leads to the big cumulative, you know, ending battle scene not, not the final, you know, one-on-one that we talked about kind of brushed off ourselves. Uh, But what'd you think of the, the big showdown, you know, when it finally got down to the end there?
2: I like the fire.
0: Yeah, yeah, this Ichi's on fire. <laughs>
2: a bit reminiscent of Zatoichi at the fire festival. but
0: Yeah, but I mean, his his sleeves are like actually burning. I mean, and it seemed like that was Katsu himself. They didn't have a stunt double in there. So he must have kind of manned up and says, okay, you know, apply the torch. I'm ready, <laughs> you know, whatever protection. But it seemed like, yeah, he was he was, his garments were actually ablaze. For uh, you know a, a significant piece of screen time, and and that shot with the with the house kind of burning behind him and and fully engulfed in flames, that, that's pretty epic. I was pretty impressed by that. You know, kind of just on a visual, you know, screen grab basis. That that's a pretty cool uh, effect there.
1: And I, I can just say that if I was in a fight with a blind man with a sword that is on fire, I'd be terrified. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, I
2: you've, always you've wonder what the what's going through the mind of the tenth or twentieth person who comes at him. Right? <laughs> I'll, it's like, it's, I'll get him. This is not going to work out, guys.
1: Uh, well,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm guy number
1: twenty. This is my time to shine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'll get <laughs> them. Well, there, there is a choreography to those large scenes where you sort of see the first guys getting you know sliced up, and then they sort of melt away at the fringes. You know, find find excuses to go attend to some other task at the moment because uh, they really don't need to become. Uh, the next in line there I'll, I'll, so, I'll at least give them credit it's
1: not like a lot of movie fight scenes where it's a dude surrounded by 10 guys and they attack them yeah. one at a time it's right. like four or five at a time and they all die and then it's like the next group that makes sense so you don't start you know hacking your friends to bits yeah.
2: I did, well, i did notice the boss dies somewhere in the middle of this fight yeah don't know yeah. why the remaining guys are bothering. It's like, you guys don't have a job anymore. Guys. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's not going to pay you. He's dead.
1: And can yeah. we just say that he looked like a ghost the entire time anyways? Yeah. I yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, don't know why yeah. they gave
0: him Kabuki ghost makeup. It's just, you know, I think again, making it pretty obvious to the people in the cheap seats, that's the bad guy. <laughs> right yeah. There. Yeah.
2: He's morally corrupt. So he looks like a, he looks it.
0: Yeah. 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 This, this is definitely, you know, B movie Western type of material, you know, the white hats, the black hats, except it's all in a Japanese, you know, kind of not, not medieval context. It's more like, a, you know, mid 1800s, yeah, feudal. but yeah, feudal. Yeah. Definitely feudal Japan, uh, you know, still kind of the old ways with a little bit of modern technology and, and things like that. So that's pretty much the, the run of it. I don't know <laughs> that I have anything much more, you know, brilliant or insightful to say about that. Um, you know, everything's resolved and, uh, you know, Zatoichi, you know, and, and, you know, I guess, you know, all of the people, you know, the, the misguided, uh, you know, uh, son of the constable, uh, after he discovers his father is dead, Oye comes and sets him straight because he thinks he's going to be avenging Zatoichi as well. That's another aspect of Zatoichi at large as the wanted man is, you know, the, uh, the the constable's son thinks that uh, Zadowichi killed his father, and even though he's been a total wastrel and a you know gadabout and, and just a kind of a, a, a waster, you know, as far as uh, dabbling in crime and thinking he's going to be somebody in the Yakuza scene, as soon as his father dies, he realizes the error of his ways, uh, and and you know tries to you know take some kind of noble revenge. It's it's it's, it's all very mechanical, and and you know. It's a little worse <laughs> than that.
2: He had his he had his change of heart just before he found out his dad was dead.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah well, okay. What, what what led to that? Yeah, refresh my memory a little.
2: Bit. uh he was disenchanted with something that the Yakuza had done. I don't remember what specifically, but he All was. Right. He was, he was disenchanted with them, so he was going back home to tell his dad he had... Oh,
0: that's right. Yeah, he, had you're right. Changed,
2: he had reformed, and his dad was dead. He thought his dad was asleep at first, too.
1: Right. You, you know, right. it's not a great sign for a movie when the three of us, if all, like, probably just... Like, I just watched this the other day, and I'm just like, what did he see again? What did he... <laughs>
0: well sometimes and sometimes these films you know they they almost seem to have this perverse um satisfaction in, in just making the plot as convoluted and yeah. multi-layered as possible and that's part of the aesthetic and part of the enjoyment I guess yeah. if you're into that kind of thing is trying to keep track of all these you know you know, two-bit players and and how they're all interconnected with each other and who's rivalry with who and all of that. Yeah. But And I think a big you know, part of that comes down to the fact that we're, we're at episodic TV level here. It's still just yeah, being yeah.
1: released theatrically. And th- this, you could easily make this into a 45 minute episode of TV and without really losing anything. But since they're trying to draw it out to feature length, you do need to add in those additional subplots that really don't involve Ichi that much. And it, I think it becomes really apparent at some of the weaker entries like Zatoichi at large yeah yeah
2: i think to a large degree what's going on like by the in the series by this point is like in the 1960s this really is tv for yeah. japanese folks the japanese tv hadn't really taken off yet and these kind of films that come out two or three times a year and are all sort of the same are like a tv series
1: exactly and, and in, in the 70s point, you saw like this and godzilla everything moved to being on tv then
2: because they're panicking because tv is really <laughs> taking off right yeah I mean, these series are kind of in trouble and that's why you get the more extreme content mm-hmm. but in this case I think it's I tend to really like this kind of stuff but I thought this one was a bit lazily executed <laughs> it was my real problem with it right that yeah. that you know it hit all the it hit all the the it hit every note it was supposed to hit and most of the notes weren't all that interesting yeah. they were it, it oh, hit man. all the
1: notes and then it said good night
2: yeah
0: yeah yeah, there's your hour and a half of entertainment. Thank you very much. See you next time. I, I will, and granted, uh, I know that,
1: David, you mentioned that this director did two other Zatuichi movies. Zatuichi and the Doom Man is another one of my lesser favorite entries mm-hmm. here. But I thought that there was an interesting bit of filmmaking, and granted, I might be reading too far into this, where it seemed like near the beginning of the film, when we first meet a character, we don't see their face right away. We're introduced to them via sounds, via kind of peripheral things. And then once Zatuichi's kind of interacted, that's when we see their face, which I thought was interesting in the sense that that's probably how a blind person recognizes someone or how it's introduced to them, where you don't see the face, you don't really get to see who they are. You see them through this like peripheral mind's eye, essentially. So I thought that was at least an interesting bit of filmmaking. And is this the first appearance of Zatoichi's, uh super flexible ears to know that he's hearing something? <laughs> You know, it really
0: did strike me, like, he's got really big ears. <laughs> and, well, it's almost and, like a finger just off screen oh, is pushing them around so that he can hear I, everything. I, I saw that because I, I remembered sort of noticing the ear wiggle the first time. And when I rewatched it again this morning, it's like, okay, they cut off the top of his ear. So there may have been some little mechanical device because that's a pretty impressive, you know, I know there are people who have the... Biological ability to wiggle their ears, but not to that. Is that, is that also he's, part. Yeah, is that, he's about to take off with those ears. <laughs> That's Dumbo style. Yeah. You know, right? yeah, but uh, is that part of Katsu's incredible skill set? I mean, he can roll his <laughs> eyes up into the top of his head pretty, pretty convincingly. And 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 uh, again, uh, for a guy who's you know he's clearly put on a few pounds since the series started, mm-hmm. um, but he's still incredibly nimble. And and you know i maybe they took a bunch of takes to get the right one, but. I'm still consi- you know, consistently impressed that this guy can wield, even if it's not a sharpened blade, he can whip that sword around a crowd of, of dudes moving in all different directions and not actually slice somebody open. And his or, eyes are closed. Or, or, yeah, really. And and, and 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 the way that he resheathes his sword after making those moves, I mean, that's some seriously athletic stuff that he's, he's producing there. So yeah, it, it can be definitely paint by numbers here and you've seen it all before and there's not anything that's really going to jump out as new and innovative but again just the dude's talent is is very uh, to me it's unquestionable and it's always it's always a pleasure to sort of see him do his thing uh so you know to me it's it's the consistency uh, even acknowledging the mediocrity that uh, you know yeah. is what we've got here mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, don't listen to me. I'm old and jaded.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you watch about, what, four movies a day? so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, you know, I feel like we've pretty much given this movie, you know, a pretty good slice of our attention and coverage there. I don't have a, much more to say about it. But uh, any final comments that you guys want to throw in? Any other little bits that stood out to you? I think, I think that says it all right there. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm
1: thinking, I, okay. I, I think I hit everything that, that that I intended to, or at least you did, because you mentioned the fact that he, he pees right in the river during the opening credits sequence. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I like the line where he's just like, I try to do something for people and I get into trouble. And it's like, haven't you watched the other movies in your own series? This always happens to you. Why are you surprised by this?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote that line down. He says... Um... I never thought doing a good deed for somebody would make me a demon. It's like, well, yeah, you have definitely not been paying attention, dude. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, okay, so we're going to draw this conversation down. But Dave and Richard, thank you so much for walking me through episode one (laughs) as I'm kind of getting back on the horse again, getting ready for uh, my fourth tour here. Um, It's been a lot of fun. Always good uh, to yuck it up with you guys. And nice to have you both on the same program as well. Um, my next episode is going to be a kind of a combo, a couple of films, uh, one of which is currently on the Criterion channel and one of which was on the channel for a while, and now I got it over on Prime Video. Uh, they're both kind of politically oriented films from Italy in early 72, The Matai Affair, and also uh, The Seduction of Mimi by Lena Wertmuller, uh, The Matai Affair by Francesco Rossi. So uh, both kind of thematically interested and also very nicely right next to each other on my chronological timeline. So we'll be taking a look at uh, Italian cinema with a little bit of a political edge to it in uh, you know episode 92 or episode 2 of season 4. So that's what I've got coming up. Again, find me on TikTok, social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, what else? Instagram, I got an Instagram Criterion Reflections account. But TikTok is where I'm hanging out these days, folks. If you want to interact with me there, I definitely invite you to check it out. Uh, you don't have to be a content creator to have an account there, and it's definitely full of interesting stuff. So um, give it a shot. Guys, anything else you want to say before we close her down? Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've had a blast. I really appreciate it both. So uh, thank you for tuning in, everybody. We'll be get back to you real soon. <laughs> let